be very fair. You don't know it all and be willing to actually listen to people. And when you're wrong, tell people you're wrong. That's the voice of Nesson Birmingham, founder, president, and CEO of Triplet Therapeutics. Listen in now to hear my conversation with Nesson at the Triplet headquarters in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'm John Simbley. You're listening to BioBoss. This afternoon, I'm in Cambridge with Nesson Birmingham, president and CEO of Triplet Therapeutics. Nesson, welcome to BioBoss. Thank you. How did you find yourself at Triplet Therapeutics? You know, I've been working in the venture industry uh, in and out for about the last nearly 20 years. Um, originally trained as a scientist. So genetics has been my primary driver when I think about my actual educational background. Um, you know, I've been very fortunate in being a founder of a company called Intelia Therapeutics to focus on CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing technology. Um, built that company, took it public. Um, and when I left as CEO there, I took a little bit of time off. Um, and Atlas Venture came back, whom I'd worked with before and co-founded Intelia with, came back and asked if I'd uh, be a venture partner within Atlas. Um, ultimately agreed to come back and do it. I thought I'd retire, I didn't. Uh, so I rejoined Atlas. Um, and really they, they opened up the door and said, take a look at various things and figure out what you'd like to do next. So I very quickly got involved with two of their portfolio companies as chair, uh, F-Star, uh, an immuno-oncology company with bispecific antibodies in the UK, Cambridge, UK. Um, and then a newer investment that they made uh, called Acrevia uh, Therapeutics, which also is in the oncology space. Um, as I was working with those companies as chair, um, a number of publications came across my desk uh, by a number of people, or from a number of people within Atlas. Uh, and those publications really talked about a new mechanism uh, that seemed to be a unifying biology driver, biological driver, uh, in repeat disorders. So as you look at repeat disorders, historically, we had thought that they were very much driven by this repeat of a very specific sequence. Different repeats different uh, for different diseases. But it's a bit like reading a book where you've got the same word like the, T-H-E, repeated multiple times in a row. And this is normal in your genome. But if that word or that repeat is too long, it actually destabilizes that DNA and it can lead to toxicity from an RNA and in some cases, such as Huntington's disease, a protein standpoint. We had thought, there's about 40 of these diseases, we had thought that each disease was independent and they had a different driver. So as we thought about therapeutic um, models for it, we actually would have to make a bespoke therapy on a parent-indication basis. So here's a series of papers that came hit my desk. Um, that actually showed that that does not appear to be the case. And what actually looks like is happening is that that repeat from an individual being born to when they show disease to ultimately, unfortunately, when they die, that repeat is actually getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And as you look across many of these indications, the biological mechanism by which that repeat gets bigger is actually conserved. So we can very clearly show that this mechanism called the DNA damage response pathway basically is going and driving the instability and expansion of that repeat over time within these patients. And that there's a lot of data now uh, to indicate that if you actually go in and target that pathway, you can stop that expansion from taking place. And by stopping that expansion, potentially then be able to prevent the onset of disease in these patients or prevent the progression or delayed progression, onset and progression within these patients. So as I read this, I looked at it and I was like, this is great. Like as we think about therapeutic intervention, 
great biology, great data from human patient data. I mean, all of this work that we're doing is driven by human patient data, which I think is nearly unprecedented in our industry. So I couldn't but not actually find the company and be CEO. One obvious question is, uh, I've read you described sometimes as a serial entrepreneur, and I get that suggests thing to thing to thing to thing, but at some point does a serial entrepreneur say, that's it, I'm done serializing, or does, does one go forever? The more recent companies that I've been involved with, there's been really very fundamental biology and data driving it. So, you know, I'd spent, I don't know, 10, 15 years looking at this sort of genome editing, gene therapy space for a long time. I was very familiar with it. And when things like CRISPR-Cas9 technology came out, it was very clear that that was the tool that ultimately we needed at that point in time. But this really is, it's, it's, as, I, as, as I look at these things, it really is a confluence of different capabilities and different uh, uh, data sets that guides it, right? So as we think about the CRISPR-Cas9 technology, one of the reasons why people were so interested in it and it was we could move so quickly with it was, you know, when we think about synthesis of nucleic acids, you know, so making RNA and DNA oligonucleotides of extended length, you know, the technology was there to allow us to do it. When we thought about, you know, the chemistry around it, being able to stabilize it, um, you know, that data had been around for work that had been done in the antisense oligonucleotide and siRNA space. When we think about delivery, both from viral delivery mechanisms like AAV into lipid nanoparticles. Again, a lot of the capability was there. We're not all the way there. We have a lot of work to do still in delivery, but there was a, certainly a foundation that we could actually leverage. And then, very importantly, when we think about deploying the technology, we had a clear sense for initial indications to actually start to deploy the technology as we think about where to target it in the genome. And it really was decades of data and work by multiple academic institutions, multiple uh, companies that really provided this data to us that then allowed us when this technology was identified to actually be able to take it and then very quickly be able to co-opt it um, in this manner. I think that that's what's so exciting and Triplet's another great example of that where the genome-wide association studies in large patient populations allows us now to be able to tease the genome apart and try to understand and try to figure out which areas of your genome are really driving your disease and how best to think about therapeutically intervening there. So while we understood the GWAS, genome-wide association study data from these patients, it really was them being able to take things like antisense oligonucleotides and siRNAs, where there's a history now in developing these as therapeutic modalities, and then be able to deploy them against these targets. So it's really when I think about finding companies, it's really a confluence of data points coming in and really taking pieces you know, to build the, the, the proverbial jigsaw that then allows you to build a company and be able to move forward. And, and that's not always the case. You know, Triplet took, well, before we really got it going, it was six, nine months of just digging into the publications, digging into um, the strategy for it. We started another company at exactly the same time called CoroBio, and the sort of next phase of nucleic acid editing technology um, that was founded around the same time, and um, we've now just actually uh, brought in some additional funding into the company. So it's really a very temporal uh, um, dynamic that's taking place as we think about starting these companies. And I, I would guess that the idea of dealing with disease at the source level must be very important, must be a, 
fun. I, yes. I mean, they're, they're, you know, you, you look at it and you think about um, any individual for most diseases out there today. It's, it's your genome that really is driving it. It's, 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 it's the foundation for it. And that may be a foundation either having a protective sequence in there to prevent the disease or delay onset or severity of disease or being able to go in and actually repair uh, some deficit in the genome in its own right. And I think that we still have a lot to learn about that. So I think there is certainly one aspect of that and that information and those data sets are growing to actually help educate us. You know, I think we, we believe we understand a tremendous amount of the genome. The reality is we don't. And if you look at the, genome, the genes people were working on before the human genome was sequenced and what they're working on today, it hasn't changed an awful lot. Um, so there's a lot of the genome that we actually don't know about and a lot of uh, putative genes there that frankly we don't know functionally what they do. So you know, I think one of the opportunities in our industry and as we think about uh, treating disease is very much going in and trying to actually understand and, and, and segment these regions of the genome to understand how targeting them and may actually prevent or treat or cure a disease. I think that's certainly one aspect. The other aspect also uh, that we spend a lot of time thinking about is how do you think about it from a personalized medicine standpoint? Um, and then thirdly, certainly cost. So, you know, we've had our first truly personalized medicine drug be approved for Batten's disease. Um, I think it was between 12 to 18 months. This was done here in, in, in Massachusetts. 12 to 18 months from starting to develop the drug for this individual uh, to getting approval for the individual, which, again, completely unprecedented in industry. Um, the tool set that's available to us today has really allowed us to be able to do it. Um, and then a regulatory framework, while it's still being, that's still being optimized, but also actually facilitated being able to move so quickly. And again, we're seeing the significant step forward uh, in, in, in being able to actually target these diseases, these genetically based disorders, uh, and actually go in and treat them and potentially cure them. And I think that is so exciting as we think about patients um, and, the, and the potential to be able to um, address many of these diseases. In those early research stages, when you were when you first zeroing in on this, did it did it occur to you that you could take something that was already out there, some research was already done, maybe a company was already working on it, and then transform that or develop that, or was it pretty clear from the beginning? I have to start this thing fresh. It was pretty clear to start it fresh, and I, and I think that's part of the excitement, though, also. Right, um, it's a blank sheet of paper. You have some academic publications that have come out um, that you review, and really just turn around and say, okay, so how do you tackle this problem, and how do you think about doing it in a in a in a quick, uh, cost-effective uh, uh, manner, and then really thinking about obviously the safety as you think about actually moving into human clinical trials. So you know, and all the companies have been involved with that's been the driver. It's 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 a new it's a new chapter. It's a new book that you're that you're writing, versus going in and piggybacking, frankly, on another company that's doing exactly the same thing that you're doing and trying to actually develop it and compete against them, which can be very good. You know, in some respects, competitive can be actually very healthy, um, especially as we think about platforms. And again, genome editing is a great example of that, where it is healthy. In other cases, it actually can become a hindrance. Um, can delay actually progression of these companies. So, um, yeah, blank sheet of paper. When you meet someone who's dealing with that blank sheet of paper from the sense, in the sense of not being an insider, and they want, they say, well, what are you doing these days? And you think, well, how deep do I go? How do you answer that? I'm a facilitator. 
Yeah, at the end of the day, you know, I, I think that one of the, um, frankly, the thing that I do is facilitate. Um, I, you know, working with venture capitalists who have a clear sense as to, um, you know, how they think about deploying their capital um, and the stage of company that they want to actually get involved with to facilitating bringing the right people together into a, a construct of an organization um, uh, that they actually can be given the opportunity to excel, uh, to grow their careers, excel in the research that they're doing, um, and then, frankly, you know, facilitate building out the strategy, asking questions, helping people think through things, where I think ultimately my job is to facilitate uh, and actually uh, support where necessary um, and, and make decisions. You know, ultimately sitting there as CEO, sitting there making a decision, a determination, and standing behind that decision. Some decisions are good and they work out well. Other decisions, frankly, don't work out well. And you have to stand behind those decisions too and basically accept the fact that actually you screwed it up. <laughs> you know? Takes courage. Uh, you know, uh, I, I think I think it, it's it, I think you know it's it is a very humbling job to be perfectly frank with you. Um, you know, it, it, having to manage multiple different people, personalities, um, expectations. You know, there are expectations obviously for your employees, expectations for your investors, expectations from your boards, your scientific advisory board, and from the patients. So you know, you, you it really you very quickly learn that you know you have to be humble about it and you, and you have to be very pragmatic and realistic about what can and cannot be done um, so you know I think it's it's a it's a very humbling job at times and, and at times also very frustrating <laughs> can you remember when you were let's say eight or nine and what your self-image was what you thought you might want to do and does that have anything to do with what you're doing no not at all I you know I certainly I'm not the cool kid in the class at all um, you know, I think it was, uh, I grew up in a, in a, on an army base. My dad was in the army. Uh, my mom was a nurse. Um, you know, we, uh, the army base in Ireland, we don't have a big army. It was a very small army base, sheep everywhere. Uh, I was about five miles from the local town where I went to school. Um, so eight or nine, you know, no idea. Uh, 16, no idea. Uh, 17, I went to university, left home and went to university. I actually started doing genetics because it was the only degree at the time that I could get at in three years. So the rest of them would take me four years to do it. Um, and I really wanted to be done with university in three. So I ended up doing genetics um, at Queen's University in Belfast. And then my PhD I did at Imperial St. Mary's uh, Hospital and Imperial College of Medicine. Um, in London and the only reason I did that was I happened to break up with my girlfriend at the time and it was Valentine's Day weekend and they invited me over to interview and I said I don't need to be around here for Valentine's Day I will go for an interview for the PhD um, and then went from there to uh, to Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas uh, and that was the reason I chose there was the PI was great Huda Zogby uh, but there was somebody in her um, in her lab a guy called Chris Cummings who, you know, he and I got on extremely well, and we had a lot of hobbies in the, that were similar, so, you know, I could see that I'd resonate well and enjoy working in the lab, so I moved there. Then went to Wall Street, no idea what it was when I went there, um, and learned very quickly about that, and then into venture capital. So, to be honest with you, I didn't even know these jobs existed, right? Um, the reality was that there were opportunities that presented themselves to me, uh, and I was probably, uh, more, not more, I was pretty arrogant to thinking I could do them, uh, so I jumped in and tried to do them, uh, and sometimes fell flat in my face, other times succeeded, um, but I, not at all, no idea. 
When people ask you, do you have a management style, how do you like to answer? You know, it's a really interesting question, right? And, and before I took operating roles, like, I thought about it and it was like, I had no idea, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's great to talk about operations when you've never done it. Uh, and then you wake up in reality when you've been on a board meeting and the board demands or wants you to do X, Y, and Z, and you're like, go. And they want it done in a day, and you're like, going, oh, shit, how do I do this, <laughs> right? Um, so, I, you know, I think that uh, management style, I, there are certain philosophies I have. So one is, if you hire somebody to do a job, you should only hire them if you're going to trust that they're going to do the job, and you can't micromanage them. So you really need to give them the leeway to be able to let them run and do the job that they've been hired to do. Um, give them the tools to enable them to be able to execute. Um, be very fair. Um, you don't know it all, and be willing to actually listen to people. And when you're wrong, tell people you're wrong. Um, which, which is, a, I think it's a learned skill. At least it was a learned skill for me. It was something that that did not come naturally to me. Um, so I think there's an element of that. I think there's an element also being very clear about direction, right? You know, sitting there and saying, you know, this is the decision. I've taken all the data. This is the decision. Let's move forward with this. Do we have consensus? Yes or no? And even if there isn't consensus there, but it's what you believe, you have to stand behind that decision one way or another. So I think you've got to be very clear and provide people with that clarity so that they can see what's going on. I think that, you know, um, how an organization is doing, be very upfront about it. You know, things like financing. You know, how is the financing going? If it's not going well, you need to tell people and be very upfront with that. Um, if, it, you know, as you look at your burn and your runway, be very clear with people around that also. You know, I have a philosophy of, of paying bonuses in January. And the reason for that is I don't want people staying around till March who are going to resign. They might as well resign in January and leave, right? Um, so, you know, there are other elements whereby making a decision, I remember once, you know, there was a decision around business development um, deal that we were working on for another company. Um, and, the, and at the time, the company had maybe four months of cash in the books. Um, and the deal just wasn't right. Now, this deal would bring us in you know, enough capital to run the company for another, you know, 18 to 24 months. Um, but it was the wrong deal for us to do. And sitting down with the senior management team and saying, you know, this is the deal that's on the table today. You know, this brings 18 to 24 months into the company, but it's, it's flawed. And these are the reasons why it's flawed. If we don't do this deal, we have maybe four months of capital open to us that we would need to find something else to be able to keep the company going. Um, my recommendation is not going is not to do the deal, but I cannot make this decision on my own. Like all of you have, will live with these consequences. As a senior management team, how do you want to do it? So I think that there are elements also of just being very upfront about it and saying we all have to live with this. So let's have a discussion about it and make a decision. Um, so I think my style is very much in that way. I'm, you know, there's there is an element I move very quickly. For some people, that's great. Other people, it's not so great. Um, and I also think it's ha being having very frank discussions with people where you're seeing challenges, be upfront about it, and try to figure out a way to resolve it. And if you can't resolve it, talk about a strategy for separation um, to actually deal with it. Um, I think the, the other aspect of it, I think, is that I think to me is very important is that you're very clear with people, you know, about benefits, healthcare, you give them the best you possibly can give them so that when they walk in the door, as best you can facilitate it, ensure that they're not worried about dental, you know, eye, health, or any of the ancillary aspects as you think about um, 
um, uh, benefits for an individual. And then the other aspect I'm very clear with the organization is by taking vacation. I take vacation, I take all of my vacation. Uh, I think it's extremely important to do that because I don't think that anybody can be working 24-7. People that tell me they work 24-7 is a head-scratcher to me. So it's very much, you know, I work Monday to Friday, Saturday and Sunday, you know, it's family time. Um, and during the summer and winter, you know, I take the time off and, and taking time off is, you know, checking, I'll check my email once or twice a day, but it really is leaving that behind. And it's being very clear within the organization that you need downtime, spend it with your families, spend it doing the things that you love, because then you come back refreshed and you, you can, you can take a more measured pers- uh, view of the work that's going on and you're not so caught up in the work that actually if, if, if it means that then you want to you need you need to shift the direction of a project or you need to actually you know say that something's not working and figure out why it is it gives you that separation to actually allow you to think like that so you know part of the management I think part of the role I have is to ensure that people actually step, step back from the organization take the time out um, and then come back refreshed so that they do the job in the best way that they possibly can do and that's not determined by time it's determined by uh, uh, the, the, the design of the experiment it's by the, the thinking through things scenario analysis risk mitigation analysis and open dialogue and being very comfortable with that open dialogue so I think that my style is very much around that and I you know uh, uh, my presentation I think also very much reflects my style <laughs> Display as discourse as a teacher, I once said. There you go. Yeah, I like that term. Do you do you find that? I'm guessing that that also that that, that has to do with respect and dignity and, and allowing people to have a life in addition to this life that they live with you. Does that has that meant that people come along with you from company to company? Yes, in many you know in many cases people have come from company to company with me, um, and and. I, there are positives and negatives to that, to be perfectly frank with you, right? So, um, the, the, you, there's a way of thinking that a team can fall into, um, and as you think about that, and as you think about a, a way of working, it um, you know you bring that style with you, and and for new people coming into an organization where the style is pre-built, can be actually very challenging for them. I say so I think you've got to be careful about that. I think the other area too is each company is very different. You know the 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 mission for the company is different. Um, the direction in which the company goes, <clears throat> excuse me, is invariably different. The lessons you're going to learn are invariably different. So it's it's almost a priori. I, I don't think you can step in and say this is how it's going to be. I think it's more of you need to let this the culture in its own right develop and actually build over time. But I think part of that also for companies is very much depending on the stage of the company and, and, and where it is in its evolution. So stage is one thing as people think about the development of a, of, of a, of a drug um, or financing, but also evolution is as you actually think about the, 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 the culture of the organization and they, they are not necessarily linked. Um, you know, it was very clear to me within Intelli it was time for me to go because the company got to a certain point in its evolution that it, I, I was not the right CEO for that company anymore and the company was not right for me anymore. Um, so, you know, it's really also being attuned to thinking about where in a company's evolution or growth is the best place for you to be. I think one of the things that I, I, I've heard from a lot of 
CEOs, especially the newer ones, is that they really want to make that step into, for example, being a public company and move very quickly to get them into that. And I think that the, you know there is not there is not necessarily an awareness or understanding as to what that actually implies, and it 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 it, it all of that flows through every aspect, both of an organization, but also from a very personal standpoint. So, you know, you, you look at the size of your organization, you look at communication and uh, discussion of material uh, data or material events that are taking place within the organization as a public company. You look at the reporting requirements around it. You look at, you know, uh, uh, your friends, your neighbors, your relations, understanding how the company is doing from the public resources that are out there. have to be very careful about what you're talking about, how you present yourself. Uh, in addition, many of them will now understand what your compensation package is um, or how the, the media may present that compensation package versus what reality actually is. So, you know, it's, it's, I think you see these elements of people rushing to do these things um, and it, it, they may be better served by actually you know, having an apprenticeship or having delaying a little bit and not rushing into it quite as quickly as we see a lot of people doing it today. What's new at Triplet Therapeutics? You know, Triplet is uh, about a year and a half old, right? Um, the company was founded, you know, late uh, 2018. Um, and that really was with a piece of paper. Um, I'm working with uh, uh, some people over at Atlas. Um, we brought in two employees uh, towards the end of 2018. Uh, one on IP uh, and one computational biology and computational design um, and really started building the company from there. So in that period of time, you know, over the last, you know, 12 to 18 months, we've built an organization now of about, you know, 40 people. Um, we have progressed uh, multiple programs now into non-human primate studies. Um, we have uh, just completed uh, technically what's been called a Series A, um, but historically, you'd have called it a Series B. You know, we got 10 million seed financing from Atlas, um, and we brought in another 49 million dollars. So, our total raise in the last uh, few months is uh, 59 million dollars into the organization, um, and we've moved into built out and moved into new facilities uh, here in Cambridge, Mass. So, you know, I think we've accomplished a lot in a very short period of time. We're on track to move into human clinical trials uh, next year. Um, which, given how old we are, I think that that's pretty, pretty phenomenal. And it's a testament of the team uh, here and the work that they've done and also the, uh, the, the, the academic uh, people that we've been having the fortune to, uh, to work with uh, to date. So, you know, there's been a lot that's gone on with the company. Um, and I'm excited about the biology. I'm excited about where we are. And, you know, we had a patient. They're on our website. There's a patient testament in there. Not about the company, but about the disease. And one of the things that we, you know, it's, it can be easy to do is to actually lose sight of why we're actually doing this. And, you know, within the Testament, um, it's a mother talks about uh, her husband who had Huntington's disease and unfortunately died of it, um, had a son who also died of it and has another son who has symptoms. Um, so it's, it's remembering that. Um, and I think that really pushes the company to move quickly uh, and move into the clinic, but also you know, tempering that with ensuring that what we move into the clinic is safe um, and is, 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 is hopefully doing what we expect it to do. Um, so you know, we've moved quickly, um, and we will continue to do that. How do, how do you go about 
focusing so keenly, as I know you must, on the day-to-day and the moment-to-moment and making things flawless and also remembering to remember what you just described. So, you know, the focus, uh, you know, the, the, I, some of it comes back to, you know, the, the sports I love to do, right? So I love to mountain bike, downhill mountain biking. Um, I snowboard and I box, right? So I, I do ultra runs and things like that. But when you think about focus, it's, 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 it's really interesting. You, you're bombing down a mountain, right? Um, and you're holding on to the bars of the bike. If you lose focus you'll fall, right? Uh, it's not a good outcome. It's the same with snowboarding and with boxing, you get punched. And it's, it's a very, uh, it, 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 I think there's an element of it actually forces your mind to actually stay on one track and actually stay on and keep that track going. That focus, you know, bringing that to a company, I think is very important. You know, and when you talk about science, you know, it, 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 it's really amazing to sit there and learn new things. And as an experiment is being run, you know, what the data as it comes out, and sometimes it leads to very tantalizing things that you want to go down, and that can send you down rabbit holes, right? And the reality, and we have this conversation all the time is, does this experiment move us closer to where we need to get to, or is it a fishing expedition that may take us down a rabbit hole? So scientifically, is very interesting, but actually practically and from a patient standpoint, is not going to be able to, it does not move the ball forward as we think about getting a drug uh, to a patient. So it's really bringing people back and asking that question on a consistent basis. Um, the patient, it's, 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 it can be very difficult, to be very honest with you. You, there are times you get so caught up with the experimental design and the data that's coming out, you actually can lose sight of the patient um, and that things are moving quickly. Um, and so we have or we try to bring patients in to actually talk to the team and remind us again and again why we're doing this and why it's so important that we actually do move forward quickly. Um, it also, as you start thinking about moving into uh, studies like non-human primate studies, being very careful and very clear about the study that you're running, um, why you're running it and what, how, again, this moves you forward or closer to actually being able to uh, run human clinical trials and be able to treat patients. So I think you've got to always keep that front and center in your mind. And, and the other aspect of it that's, that I would say is important is the, the dollars that an investor gives us. And, you know, when people think about investors, in many cases, they're thinking about some hedge fund, man- hedge fund manager or some venture capitalist that's flying around in their jet and you know X, Y, and Z. But the reality is, the dollars that many of these individuals are investing into us are your pensions. So you know, it it's, we have um, you know. Uh, we have to be very careful with the capital that we're spending because at the end of the day, we're spending money that people are putting into 401k, you know, for their retirement. So, you know, we actually, you know, we have a responsibility to them also. So when we talk about spending a dollar uh, in, a, in, a, in an experiment or, you know, in, in some operational aspect of the business, we have to be clear that that dollar is coming from somewhere and that we have a responsibility to that individual that ultimately has invested that dollar into the venture capital company through potentially some other mechanisms, right? But it all goes back, goes back to an individual. 
and that you know they warrant being considered also as we think about how we're using it and that we're not wasting that money as best we can. And that's a really very important element, I think, also as we think about the ecosystem in which we live. When you do have that moment of silence around you and you're just thinking about the good that the company can do, I'm not talking about financially or anything having to do with building a business, but, but the patient part of it, when you allow yourself to think, my God, if this thing turns out, I, I could do this, what, what is that image? What's that picture? Within triplet, it really is this, this potential to be able to treat 40 diseases. Hey, the biology here seems very strong and robust. And again, all of this data is being driven through human genetic analysis. So it's not, you know, a, a cell culture, you know, some cell in addition, a lab, uh, or it's not a mouse where you've seen this response. It's actually human patients, right? And that's really guided us. And the potential to be able to have a biological mechanism that is applicable across 40 different diseases is unprecedented in, in our industry. And it allows us potentially to be able to move from thinking about individual indications to really thinking about tissue. So if you have a repeat disorder in the CNS, this is the drug, right? And it kind of doesn't matter which repeat disorder you have. If you have it in the muscle, it's this drug. You know, so it, it really changes. It's a paradigm shift as we think about not only treating large numbers of diseases with potentially the same drug, but also as we think very much about uh, drug development, label expansion, regulatory approval, similar to some of the work that we've seen within something like cystic fibrosis where you have drugs now for multiple different mutations within the CFTR uh, gene. So uh, that's really exciting to me. I think that the, the area that you know, I'm, I'm certainly very focused on now is how do we think about pricing? You know, as we start thinking about these gene therapies that are coming through or, uh, you know, some of these cellular therapies that are coming through, you know, these are, you know, the, the pricing of these are exorbitant and, 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 and the healthcare system cannot sustain that. And as we think about, you know, healthcare democracy, you know, everybody should have equal rights to be able to access these things. And when I say equal rights to access it, these drugs, it's equal rights not just here in the U.S., but when we think about it from a global standpoint, somebody with Huntington's disease here in the U.S. is no different, has no more right to a drug than somebody with Huntington's disease in India or in Ireland. So when we start thinking about this, we've got to start addressing or thinking about how do we think about structures that will allow us to be able to treat these diseases and get them to patients in a, in a reasonably fast fashion through the regulatory structure but also when they're approved, how do you think about the cost effectiveness of them? How do you think about the distribution of them? And how do you really think about that healthcare democracy, which frankly, I think our industry has not been particularly uh, good at uh, to date. And one only needs to look at the gene therapies, uh, one only needs to look at the cellular therapies that are out there to know that you know, for many individuals, it's cost prohibitive. You know, many of the patients that we're talking about here have difficulty paying for the bus to get them to the hospital, take time off from their job, you know, where they may be on minimum wage, to be able to just go to a hospital, have somebody take care of their kids while they go to the hospital, never mind having infusions for hours or taking days to actually have these treatments. How do we think about that? So we've got to think about a mechanism, we've got to think about, and people think I'm crazy, but we've got to start thinking about systems whereby we can get it directly to your door 
and you can inject yourself, you can deliver it to yourself. So if you think about you know the, our distribution networks today, if you think about um, Amazon getting a book to you, there are some cases where Amazon literally will print that book, bind it, and ship it out to you after you've ordered it. When we think about um, you know computational design for drug design, you know. Um, the computational systems out there to start allowing us to design these and synthesize some of these oligonucleotides, they're relatively straightforward. On a relative basis, they're relatively straightforward. When we think about things like Cosentix, Humira, you know, when Humira came out originally, we never thought that we would be able to manufacture enough uh, through the manufacturing capabilities that we had to be able to treat the population that needed this drug. And that really we would not be able to distribute it out to people's homes. Look at it today. If you're on some of these drugs, the drug is shipped directly to your door or to your local pharmacy. You walk in, you pick it up, you go home to your own home, and you inject it into yourself. So, you know, in the last 20, 25, 30 years, we've come a long way. And as we start to look at some of these drugs now and these therapeutic approaches, this, the infrastructures are there to allow us to start to actually realize these things. So we now need to start thinking about, well, how do you actually affect that and how do you, act, act, how do you actually leverage it? Um, and that allows us then to start moving from not only you know, here in the US and in Europe and the Western world, but actually start to move into um, you know, other, other countries. I was in Tanzania a few years ago, and when you look at the infrastructure there, you know, cellular phones, people had cellular phones, we were able to access them and pay to actually be able to get their minutes. So, you know, as we start thinking about the evolution of our technologies, the evolution of our infrastructure, excuse me, and distribution channels, you know, we've got to start thinking about how do we utilize those as we think about medicines and getting them to people that really are, that need them, and that how do we do it in a cost-effective, affordable manner that actually everybody will be able to get access to them. And that, to me, is the next big thing we need to address. You opened my eyes. I, 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 like many people, I picture Amazon bringing things I don't really need that I probably should have never have ordered, and, and the drone arriving at my office or at my door. But this is different. There's that this is potentially that drone carrying. There's no reason to believe, you know, as you think from a distribution network standpoint, that actually you can't do that. And also, as you start thinking about design, you know, I mentioned the drug for Batten's disease, the first truly personalized medicine. You could argue that some of the CAR-T therapies are truly personalized medicines also. I think that's a fair argument to make. But when we think about a synthetic drug that's actually been designed and developed for that individual versus taking cells out of your body, modifying them, putting them back in, you know, that's the first instance of that. And f as you think about that, you know, that really opens up the door of really now starting to think about personalized medicine. So if you think about where we are today, and we talked a little bit about convergence of all of these tools and capabilities, but we're moving from a situation whereby your human genome, you know, in the near future, you will be able to sequence for $100, $150. It can all be captured up in the cloud and the analytics that can be done around it, right? As you start to actually look at SNP variants in there, as you look at mutations in there, as you look at, you know, given where you live, um, you know, lifestyle, start to think about the potential for different diseases, cardiovascular disease, uh, as a very good example. Um, and then start thinking about being able to design, you know, based on your unique human genome sequence, synthesize an oligonucleotide or a drug, formulate it, uh, package it, and ship it to you. 
So, you know, the, we, we, the, many of these tools are there. They haven't been put all together. And there's a big element here, which is clearly the genetic understanding, genetics understanding, the implications, and ensuring that whatever we modify or whatever we impact is safe and well tolerated. But we are getting to the point now where we, the integration of these capabilities now is starting to become more of a reality. And really it's up to us now to think about how best to actually utilize that. And I look at things like um, diseases such as uh, the triplet repeat disorders, um, where really you can start to think about potentially being able to have a far more personalized approach as we think about targeting or treating these, these diseases. And that to me is extremely exciting and hopefully will allow us to bring the cost of, of, of our drugs way down. When you encounter someone who has one of the diseases that Triplet is looking to address, is it, are you thinking in terms of transformative, life-saving, I mean, what is the degree of severity and sadness that you're, you're trying to deal with? For many of these diseases, it very much depends on the stage the patient's at. There are some stages late that, unfortunately, with our approach, there's nothing you can do. Um, so really, we, you know, we're aiming to move much earlier in disease onset and progression so that either we're delaying or preventing the onset of symptoms in these patients or we're delaying the progression of the disease in these patients. The, um, so really, it's, you, know, you make a very good point. I mean, for a lot of these genetic disorders, there is no treatment, right? So when you talk about being diagnosed, I think for a lot of people, you know, they may not want to be diagnosed because, frankly, there's nothing that they can do, right? Um, so you know, for we're starting to see that shift now where people are getting are being diagnosed more and more because there are a number of different therapeutic opportunities in development today um, that they may benefit for uh, from if they are ultimately approved. I think one of the challenges, though, um, from a patient standpoint, is you know I've sat on advisory boards where we've had patient representatives there also. And the challenge that sometimes you face on the flip side is that you know it's it's these are so, so devastating diseases that no matter what idea comes along, there is a drive and desire to invest into it. And the the challenge in 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 a number of cases is that drive and desire one completely understands, but the actual project or the program that they're that's being looked to be funded and that the individual wants to fund doesn't make any sense at all. And from a scientific rationale and clinical development standpoint, you know, it's 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 very challenging, if not impossible, to actually justify the investment in that. And when you when you think about these, these are finite dollars. You know, we're back to this idea about this is not a bottomless well. So if you spend a dollar in a treatment, you know, for a program X that means you have a dollar less for Y and Z. So, you know, it's, it's the, the, the patient is an absolutely central and critical uh, consideration as you think about these companies, as you think about these programs, as you think about the input. But there's also an element that you need to take a step back and be very clear 
um, you know, an allocation of dollars and how you think about that allocation because not everything is going to work and sometimes the data is very clear this is not going to work and it's not in the patient's best interest to actually try and develop this. That sounds like it could be the toughest part of the job, Nesson. It's, it's, you know, the, the advisory board I sat on, um, we had patient representatives from multiple different diseases for the, 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 the various programs that we were evaluating and it was extremely challenging because you had, uh, you know, I remember one instance where we had a, um, a patient this was an individual we'd worked with for multiple years, and um, it was neurodegenerative disease. And over the years, you know, so clearly was degenerating, and, and you you know, on a very, you know, uh, personal level, like this is somebody that you know, and it's heartbreaking. Um, and yet, there were times that programs would come in, and we 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 could not fund them simply because they made no, from a scientific and clinical standpoint, they made no sense. And it was devastating to the patient at the end of many of these meetings. It was like, but that could be the, that could be the one that cures me. And, and it's, 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 it's trying to actually navigate that is extremely, it's extremely challenging. And, and I, I can completely empathize. I mean, it's just terrible. These are terrible diseases. Nesson, you've been doing this for a while. As you look to the future, what do you anticipate? What do you see for the future of biotechnology? I think we're in an extremely exciting time, right? Um, you know, we have these toolkits now available to us. And the toolkits are, you know, antisense, siRNAs, small molecules, you know, viral vehicles for gene therapy, cellular therapeutics. So we have toolkits, right? Um, we have, you know, we are on our way as we start thinking from a manufacturing standpoint. We're not there yet. For certain aspects of the aspects, we really are there. And we're very effective and, and, and good at what we do. Um, from a genetic base of diseases, there's a lot of data coming through. I think that is really exciting, right? And it's, it's, it's data that's actionable. You know, triplet's a great example of that. Um, as long as we don't trip ourselves up, right? I mean, one of the issues that, you know, people ask about triplet is, well, this has been known for a while. Like, why now? And it strikes me a little bit of, you know, if I remember, you know, you probably remember, right, ulcers. Everybody thought it was like stress, right? And like, there was stress, stress driving ulcer, blah, blah, blah. And then one guy is like, no, 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 no. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a bacterial infection. Uh, and finites turn around that actually that is the case, right? So prion disease, everybody was turning around saying, you know, there's a nucleic acid component to it. You know, there's no such thing as a catalytic protein, blah, blah, blah. You know, a couple of people said, no, 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 we believe it's catalytic protein. Turns out it's catalytic protein. Um, or even the human genome, right? Ah, oh, we are so complicated, right? We are these complex um, uh, organisms, you know, there must be at least 100 to 120,000 genes, right? Uh, to actually make us, given how complex we are and what it looks like, it's about 23,000, maybe 25,000 genes in there, right? So I think we are, we can be uh, our own, drive our own failure in our thinking if we're not open-minded and could be very open-minded. So anyway, very exciting times, a lot of tools, a lot of capabilities. Um, closed minds will prevent us from really being able to uh, understand, uh, be able to develop and utilize those systems in place. The other aspect I think is a complete lack of understanding of sick people. Um, you know, we talk about developing drugs and bringing drugs to the market. And as I talked a little bit about earlier, the pricing of some of these is just, it's, it's, it's not viable. And it's not, it's, 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 some of it is pricing, some of it is actually 
administrative paradigm, right? Where you're talking about, again, people who may be living 200 miles away or 300 miles away from the hospital where they're going to get this treatment, who may be on minimum wage, who may have young kids, who may be actually very old, how do they get to the hospital? How do they afford to pay there? How do they afford to be away from home for that period of time? You know, all the actual components around actually treating the patient. How do we think about that? So, you know, there's a certain, I think there's a certain lack of, of, of thinking or a little clarity as we look at a lot of, a lot of how our industry generally thinks or some groups within our industry think about this and think about, you know, access to these therapeutics. So, you know, I, I use the word healthcare democracy and I don't use it lightly. It's very, if we were a democratic society, one person, one vote. Well, it should be the same as we think about medicine. So how do we do that? And it's going to be absolutely critical over the next few years that actually we figure this out and we find a way where actually that there is true democracy here from a healthcare standpoint that everybody is actually able to access it as they need it. And we got to figure that out. So that's my biggest concern from a very macro standpoint. From a microcosmo, you know, uh, micro standpoint, certainly the Cambridge uh, ecosystem is becoming challenging just as we think about access to capability, people's capabilities or expertises. Space, you know, space is a premium here. Um, and I think it's very important. We're, we, we took facilities, new facilities here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And we're very fortunate to work with Alexandria in being able to design uh, and, and, and outfit the, the, the facilities here. But there's a dearth of it. Um, and we're seeing companies being forced out of here because either they can't afford it or they just can't find the facilities. How do we think about that? Because having people in a, in a localized ecosystem, I think, is only helpful to all the companies within it. And then the requisite expertise and capital. So there's a lot of areas that we need to stay focused on um, within the greater uh, Cambridge area. But also as we think about you know, uh, any cluster of academic institutions, any cluster of scientists, any cluster of companies that actually we, we think about how to resource them appropriately and ensure that that, that that system is in place to be pragmatic, inquisitive, you know, considerate as you think about strategy uh, and really actually has the, that inherent capability to be able to move forward back to being thoughtful about the patient because this is only good for the patient and for the investor in the utilization of their dollar. So I think it's these are all very important elements as we think about our industry. Nesson, thanks for taking time to talk with me today. Thank you very much for hosting me. It takes just a moment of conversation with Nesson Birmingham to know you're talking with someone with keen insights. That's not unusual when speaking with a CEO or founder of a company, but there's another quality that stands out with Nesson. He's listening carefully to you. During our conversation, Nesson described leadership of a biopharma company as a humbling experience. He says, while some decisions work out well, not everything turns out as planned. You have to stand behind those decisions and accept the fact you actually screwed it up. In my experience, this kind of integrity at the top goes a long way toward building the trust necessary for a team to thrive. And it's not only an efficient way to lead, fewer misunderstandings, less time wasted trying to guess what leadership is thinking, but it's also the kind of personal respect that makes people want to do everything they can for the CEO and the company. As Nesson said in the quote that opens his BioBosk podcast, be very fair, you don't know it all. 
and be willing to actually listen to people. And when you're wrong, tell people you're wrong. I'm John Simboli. You're listening to BioBoss. <laughs>